Now, you may not have noticed, or you may have noticed, that there's a weird little section in this story where God says, now hold on, if we don't stop them, nothing will be impossible for them. And if that hasn't messed with you a little bit, it should. Because stories in the Bible like this, they're hard. They're complicated. They pose problems that we're supposed to wrestle with. And sometimes I think the Bible would be a lot easier to swallow and understand if it were a textbook. Some sort of systematic theology that drops down out of heaven and tells us categorically, here's what God is like, and here's what you should do about it. Right? I'll never forget a friend of ours, maybe 10 years ago at Oikos in Bellingham, saying, I wish, in a Sunday school, she said, I wish God would just tell me what to do so I can be a good girl. I deeply resonate with that, don't you? But textbooks don't work on us. They don't mess with us. They just inform us. They fill our minds, but they don't set our hearts on fire. So why when David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, Nathan, the prophet, didn't come and say, David, here's the nine ways in which you've really messed up. He came and said, once upon a time, and he told King David a story that ended with, you are the man, and it got to the heart. It messed with him. So when we come to a story, like at the end of Genesis 3, um, if you can remember back there, that was probably November that we were talking about Genesis 3 or October. At the end of Genesis 3, God says, all right, now lest sinful mankind reach out their hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then he gives them the boot to prevent them from eating from the tree of life. And now here in our story, lest anything that they set their minds to be totally attainable for them, let's get them out of here. When you come to stories like that and you think, is God afraid? Does he feel threatened by humanity somehow? If you're thinking that, good. You're letting the story mess with you. You're letting it do its work, like fermentation. It can be a long, slow process, but let it do it. Now, do you know what happens when lots and lots of people, humans, sinful humans, get together with one language, one common purpose, The Holocaust, transatlantic slave trade, Jim Crow, genocide. We live, I mean, if you think about the internet, we live in an age of globalization where we can talk to many, many people across many different languages in the blink of an eye. And there have been some benefits to that globalization, right? There have been lots of good things we could all point to. But there's also been an increase, an unbelievable increase in addiction to pornography, destroying young men and women, destroying families, and fueling a human trafficking system that is more extensive and depraved than this world has ever seen. Furthermore, This globalization and an ability to gather like-minded people across geography and all of that. Again, technology is not bad, but it's dangerous. And all of a sudden, we have the rise of conspiracy theories 
truth gaslighting in such a way that we are crippled to think and function in a society. Humanity, unified, without Christ, is a terrifying thing. So God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So you tell me, is that cowardice or mercy? Yeah, it is mercy. Now, um, I have no seamless transition to the rest of the sermon. We're not really talking about that. (laughs) Think of it as a prologue. Here's the big idea that we're going to get at today from this text. Sort of the thesis. God will not bless our sin, and God will not baptize our rebellion. And if you want a life of eternal significance and beauty and security and safety, you can only get it by receiving it as we put our faith in Jesus and are filled with his spirit. That's what we're talking about today. And we're going to do it in two points. Number one, God bless this mess. And number two, aren't we impressive? (laughs) Thanks. I spent a lot of time on those certain point headings. (laughs) All right, number one, let's dive in. God bless this mess. Now, on Christmas Eve, I may have mentioned this already, Christmas Eve, I I got stuck at Hobby Lobby uh, for an hour during a power outage. That might be heaven for some of you. It wasn't for me. That's fine. There's no judgment there. I had a lot of time to stand and look at all of those signs that are on the walls, you know, like up above the door. These the, the cute sort of wooden signs that we buy and hang on our dining room walls and our front doors. And one of them, and I'm not picking on you if you have this sign, one of them says, bless this mess. Now, I get the sentiment, right? Imperfect lives. This is sort of a beautiful mess of family and home and relations. It's okay. I'm, I'm not lampooning the sign. But it does sum up this text and the heart of what's going on at Babel. They gathered an open rebellion against God and then demanded that God bless them in their sin. So God made his will for humans very clear in Genesis 1. one twenty-eight: be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all kinds of creatures. And then God reiterated that in the story with Noah in Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill it. The same way that he told the fish to fill the sea and they teemed just absolutely busting at the seams with life. That's what God wanted with God-glorifying, God-obeying, God-loving humans. Fill the earth. Get out there. Nooks and crannies. And instead of taming and filling, they clustered together. They gathered on the plains of Shinar, and they did it specifically to have it their way and not God's. So it wasn't, they just thought it was a good idea and accidentally did it and didn't think about the consequences. They actually said in verse four, let's build a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens so that we don't get scattered, so that God doesn't have his way here. We get our way instead. That's the rebellion I'm talking about. So therefore, this this story in Genesis 11 is not saying technology is bad. It's not saying cities are bad or towers are bad. Cities are God's idea. Read Revelation 21. And the city garden 
that is our future. That was always God's plan. Cities are not a human idea, and cities are not the problem. The problem is that God said, fill the earth, and they said, no. You know, I was thinking about it with, if you have kids, you sort of get the difference between a thing that's inherently bad and a thing that's bad because mom or dad say so. You know, is eating candy bad? No. Is eating candy bad when mom or dad say you can't have candy? Yes, right? That's what's going on here. It's pride. We know better. Because it's bad. <laughs> As if that pride of saying we're going to have our way and not God's isn't enough, though, they were also trying to get God to bless their sin. So let me explain what I mean by that. When we hear the word tower, especially if you you know grew up, grew up with the children's Bibles that I did, you picture this big inverted ice cream cone shaped skyscraper. And that's not what, what's going on here. The ancient Mesopotamians of this region were not in the skyscraper building business, they were in the ziggurat building business. So all the language in this passage points to this being a ziggurat, from the, the building materials specified to the region it was built in, uh, to the language used to describe it as having its top in the heavens, to the response of God coming down. You see, ziggurats are those ancient, you've seen them, you've seen pictures, they look like staircases that go up on either side, right? Mayan temples sort of idea. Um, or if you've seen kind of artist renderings of Babylonian ziggurats or whatever, that's what we're talking about here, a ziggurat, a staircase-shaped mountain, man-made mountain thing. And the point of a ziggurat, common misconception is that it's a temple. It's not a temple. And common misconception is that humans go climb up the skyscraper tower thing to say, look how high up in the heavens we are. That's not the point. It's not about humanity going up. It's about God coming down. So ziggurats are next to temples, or they're in the midst of a city that functions like a temple, a temple city, in this, as in this case. And the point of an ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat is get God to come down the stairs and dwell in our midst, down here. It's the link between heaven and earth. So they built Babel to say, on the one hand, we hereby take control of our future, God. We tell you that we don't need you to rule us. And would you also please come down and live among us and bless us and give us security and peace and happiness? Sound good? I wonder what Babels we're building. I've built some. There are few times in the Bible that God, as it were, comes down from heaven in judgment but when he does, it's because the wickedness and sin have reached a terrifying level. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a story of serious sin. And God deals with it seriously. The action God takes here in Genesis 11 shaped the world that we know today. I mean, there's 6,800 some spoken languages in the world or something like that. You know, hundreds of tribes and clans and states and nations and, and countries and all sorts of divisions around this globe. And it's all an enduring sign that God 
will not bless our sin. The, the diversity in this world should remind us to not go our own way and expect God to baptize it. I wonder how many times, <laughs> I don't want to know the number, um, we've gone down our own way, our own road in life when we know it's not what God wants for us, but we do it anyway. When we do that, we naturally gather together with like-minded people. We cluster together with people who think like us. We need to. It doesn't feel safe to defy God alone. So we find like-minded people to tell us that we're okay. But even though we want to go our own way, we still want what philosophers have always called the good life. We still want the blessing of God and all that comes with it. Just like the people still wanted God to come and live in their city, you know, protect them and bless them. We want the security. We want a certain bright future. Fellowship, community, joy, peace. And we want all of that without a cloud of guilt and condemnation hanging over our heads. So how do we get that? Well, we find out exactly how in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 is like the inside-out Babel story. So after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, we get this story where all the believers are gathered together in one place, but not in rebellion. They're not shaking their fists at Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They're praying. And just like in Babel, so God comes, God does come down in Babel. Come, let us go down and see this tower they've built. Just like in Babel, God comes down in Acts chapter 2. But it's not to judge them or to, you know, mock their tower. He comes down to pour out his spirit on them and bless them. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin speaking in the tongues, the languages of all of these other nations that are around. They did it to preach the good news of Jesus to these Babel-scattered peoples in all the diverse tongues. The thing is, the people at Babel, they wanted heaven and earth to become one. We've been seeing this all throughout the Genesis story so far. They wanted God to come down from the heavens and dwell among them, so they built this staircase. And it turns out, this isn't the only staircase to bridge heaven and earth in the book of Genesis. Several chapters later, we'll get to this, I don't know when, sometime this year, a man named Jacob has a vision from God of another staircase. And the bottom of the staircase is on the earth, and the top of the staircase is in heaven, and angels are ascending and descending, going up and down this staircase, commonly known as Jacob's Ladder not a ladder. But if you fast forward a long time to the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, in John chapter 1, Jesus says this to a confused disciple. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. In other words, God has always wanted heaven and earth to become one. God has always wanted to dwell among us and bless us. 
but no tower we build, no impressive structure of politics or morality or religion or social ideologies can ever bring heaven down to earth. Jesus is the way, and there is no other. God comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he meant in John 1. And that's what the disciples in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost believed, that God would come down, heaven and earth would be united on the basis of the work of Jesus, not on the basis of our work. And when you put your trust in that Son of Man, God pours out his blessing on you. And he has no greater blessing to give than himself. His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, God finally dwelling with us, in us. I think it's in 2 Peter that Peter dares to say that when we trust in Jesus, we become, quote, partakers of the divine nature. I would not say that were it not in the Bible. Partakers of the divine nature. That really is heaven on earth. So if you want the good life, security, peace, a bright future, without a cloud of guilt hanging over your head, the only way is to stop relying on your own building projects. Throw your lot in with Jesus, who brings heaven down to earth. You can try to, like Babel did, make a name for yourself, or you can magnify the name that is above all names. But you can't do both. You can live the life you want, do as you please, shake your fist at the heavens for a while, but you'll have to quench your conscience. You'll have to stuff it down. You might not sleep at night. You're going to have to surround yourself with people who tell you it's going to be okay so that you can live with yourself. Or you can live the life that God's asking you to live which doesn't start with you following the rules. We learned with the kids what the rules are for in the first place, to show you that you can't follow the rules. The life God wants you to live is a life of faith, where you receive Jesus, you trust Jesus. And then, out of trust in Jesus, you live a life of beauty, self-sacrifice, humility, honor. God himself will make his home with you and give you himself. So that's point number one. Point number two, aren't we impressive? In verse four, the people at Babel say, let us make a name for ourselves. And if you want to understand that phrase, just think about Nashville. How many people do we know, probably a lot, who have moved to this city to make it in the music industry? I bet you know a lot of people like that who've come here with the purpose of making a name for themselves. And what they're really after is to do something there they enjoy, uh, you know, being recognized for it and securing their future by building a reputation for themselves based on their skill and their talent and their ability. 
In other words, to make a name for yourself is to say, my future and my security are in my hands and they stand on my ability and skill. If you move to Nashville for music, don't be offended. It's an illustration. <laughs> it's not wrong to move for music. So I'll take the fangs out of it and, and turn this around. Um, I'm called a church planter by some. I prefer just thinking of myself as a pastor, but we're planting a church. And church planting in this country has become so entrepreneurial and opportunistic that it's the thing that a young seminary graduate sets his mind to do. I'm going to go plant a church, you know, gather a core team, meet on Sunday evenings, shift to the mornings, start a church, start a podcast, build a platform, get my name published on the Gospel Coalition. I'll secure my future by making a name for myself. It's not right. So any human endeavor, mine, yours, can become a building project that just bolsters up our own pride. And self-sufficiency is dangerous. Look, God, we've made a name for ourselves. Aren't we impressive? If I sound sarcastic with this point, I mean to. I don't normally approve of sarcasm. But God used it in this story. His response to this grand tower is sarcasm. It's what John Piper calls holy scorn. So look at God's response to this big impressive tower with its top in the heavens in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So the top of this tower is supposed to be in the heavens, really high. And it's like the people of Babel said, look, God, we've made this big, impressive ziggurat tower thing. Good, right? He's like, oh, hold on, let me get my glasses. I can't quite, oh, no, there it is, little speck. Hold on, I'm going to have to get closer to see your teeny tiny tower of impressiveness. <laughs> this is literary irony, of course, not literalism. But humanity trying to earn their way into God's favor or humanity trying to impress God with their technology, their cleverness, their effort, it's ridiculous. Now, lest we just point out at the world and go, yeah, ridiculous, let me rephrase that. When I try to earn God's smile by how hard I pray, how much I study, or how well I preach, it's laughable. God created us, and we want to impress him. We want to demand things of him. God created black holes, quarks, nebulae, the cardiovascular system, Mount Everest, the Mariana Trench, the human womb, life itself, light. And we're like, look at this fancy church we made, God. You got to come bless it because we made it and it's special. 
Psalm 2 speaks with Genesis 11. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is not impressed. We are created things, and all of our beauty, all of our cleverness, all of our dignity is derivative. It's received. It's given. It's not earned. Human effort alone cannot earn God's favor. Our cleverness at living a good-looking life does not earn God's blessing. In Mark 13, (laughs) Jesus is walking with some disciples out of this temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem. An impressive structure. Really, truly impressive. I mean, it would have been just covered in gold inside. Massive, beautifully hewn, giant stones for the foundation. Took 40 some odd years to build. Here's what Mark 13, 1 and 2 says. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Even our religious building projects done without Jesus, built on a foundation other than Jesus, will be completely torn down and utterly worthless. He's not impressed. Any religious or social structure or any individual life built on a foundation other than Jesus will not last. Only God's building projects endure. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Amen. Amen. The disciples in Acts 2 who first received the Holy Spirit in that kind of power, they got this. They knew this. They were the church of Jesus Christ, built on the foundation of Christ. A couple chapters later in Acts, Peter gets in trouble for healing a guy. Now, if I were him, I'd be real tempted to pause when I got in trouble and they say, in whose name did you do this great miracle? And say, Peter? (laughs) John? But that's not what Peter did. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the foundation. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
In other words, there's only one building project worth anything in this world, and Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of it. And any promise of the good life built on any other foundation is an empty promise. Political affiliation, gender politics, sexual identity, career success, good old family values, all of them are empty promises. Genesis 11 shows us two terrible pitfalls. Trying to get God to make us feel okay about our sin, which he will not do. And trying to get the good life by making a name for ourselves, which we cannot do. But when Jesus humbled himself, thinking about Philippians 2. I never get away from Philippians 2 after we studied it this last spring. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 talks about how Jesus did not count equality with the Father a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself in humility, taking the form of a servant, a human, and then going even lower into death. And when he did that, when Jesus humbled himself and came down, he refused to bless our sin but he willingly agreed to pay the price for them. So he won't make you feel good about your sin and your rebellion, but he will remove the cloud of guilt. When you turn to him in repentance, confession, he will pay for your sin and take the guilt on himself so you do not have to bear it anymore. And Jesus refused and refuses, because he's still alive, to let you think that you can have the good life apart from him. When we try to make a name for ourselves, history proves, the Bible shows, that we slide almost immediately into oppression and cruelty and deception. But when Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, In other words, when he took his name and all that it meant, the reputation, the power, the honor, the glory, and he let go and went down through death, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 ends by saying he was given the name above every other name, the name at at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The name of Jesus, his glory, his reputation, his honor, it's the only name worth bowing to and it's the only name worth lifting up because he's the only one worthy and his foundation is the only one worth building on. So Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we were supposed to have died so that we could actually have the good life so that he could give himself to us by his spirit and turn us into a people of eternal significance and safety. Shape us into a community of heaven on earth beauty. That's what this local church is meant to be. And friends, genuinely, you're on your way. We are. This is a beautiful community. And the point of this thing is to love each other with such otherworldly love that the name of Christ is magnified. Like that temple next to the ziggurat. 
when we lean on the foundation of Christ, as Jesus is the one who brings heaven to earth, he fills, he comes down. He fills us with his spirit. He dwells among us. And then we're turned into living stones, as Peter calls it, built up into God's house and God dwelling among us. We become together the place where heaven meets earth. Who doesn't want that? So I'll close uh, with this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the only one worthy of being the foundation on which our lives are built. You're the only one worthy to be the head of your church, the cornerstone of this city of God that you are building. We've so often lifted our heads in pride, but you are so gentle with us. We praise you for that. Thank you for giving yourself to us all the way, for removing our guilt, giving us your peace and your joy. Amen.